0: Welcome to the We Talk Careers podcast, brought to you by Women in ETFs. This is Christine Delano, and I'm thrilled you've joined me. Every week, we'll meet an amazing executive who'll share a story about her career and give us some great insight into her success. So if you are pursuing excellence in your own career or intrigued by the hustle required for a career on Wall Street, this podcast is for you. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to subscribe. You can learn more about Women in ETFs and the exchange-traded fund industry at womeninetfs.com. We have a freebie for this episode, our gift to you. You can grab it at christinedelano.com. Find out more about our show, see some behind-the-microphone photos, and get a preview of our upcoming guests on Instagram and LinkedIn. All these links are in the show notes. So... Put aside that massive to-do list, and let's get inspired. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Joanne Hill. She's going to dive into the art of managing 360 from and to all the constituents in our careers. Joanne has over three decades of experience helping investors. She currently leads research and investment strategy at CBOE Vest, and prior to this current role... Joanne served as Head of Institutional Investment Strategy at ProShares, and she was also Managing Director at Goldman Sachs. She is a recipient of the William F. Sharp Indexing Lifetime Achievement Award, and Money Management Executive named her one of the 10 inaugural recipients of the Top Women in Asset Management Award. Frankly, I could go on and on with what she has done for and in this industry, but after traveling for a third of her career Joanne lives in Kiowa, South Carolina, by the beach. Joanne is a runner, an avid golfer, and just learned pickleball. As I did last summer, I am so happy to have her on the show. Welcome, Joanne. Hey, Christine. So great to be here today. Oh, I'm so glad to hear your voice. You continue to have an impressive career. So it's just great to have you on the show. You have also been an amazing supporter of getting this podcast launch, and I really want to thank you for that. Oh, yes. it's As as head of career
1: services or co-head with Jillian Del Signore, I can tell you that this this idea came to us and was immediately something we wanted to pursue.
0: Absolutely. I I felt it and um, it's been great. So and I imagine a lot of people have stories about how your support has influenced and empowered them. So I'm so happy that we can talk today about managing 360. I couldn't think of a better person to talk about this. So thank you, Joanne.
1: Well, thank you. And just I have to say that I've learned a lot through my career in managing. And I, it could be that some of the folks who work for me are listening in and rolling their eyes like, how could she talk about management? But <laughs>
0: <laughs> I doubt that. I doubt that. But you've had a long career and we all have learnings throughout. So what I think is so cool in talking to you is that so many of us are in remote managing positions now. So many of our listeners globally are figuring it out during this pandemic, during this time of how to manage teams when they're not face-to-face. And from what I understand, you had an early on time where you needed to to do just that. So can you kind of take us back and tell us a story about effectively managing remotely? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. And Christine,
1: I tell people today that uh, I have had not too much trouble adapting to this uh, work from home and remote work situation because I've had to manage teams from a great distance and very diverse teams at that Mm. for, for quite a long time. When I got to Goldman in the mid 90s, one of the big opportunities was to assist institutional investors in cross-border transactions. This is when many U.S. investors were diversifying internationally. Many right. uh, of our clients in Australia, Tokyo, Europe were investing internationally as well, Canadians diversifying. And so that was part of my my job was to manage a team that helped make that happen by covering global derivatives and global indexes. Right. And ETFs were just starting, so I actually uh, had to do this before the internet, when email <laughs> was just uh, a new thing. Wow! And uh, and I had a, a team of very bright but uh, junior people, I would say mm-hmm. a few a few more experienced managers, based in London, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and New York, and. Oh, at least
0: they're all in the same time zone, right? Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) And we had to do things like produce a daily valuation report that the traders used for futures Mm. four times a day because markets opened in different time zones. Right. And picture doing this with spreadsheets and a kind of mainframe computer databases. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And uh, it was quite the challenge. And of course, I had the best and brightest analysts that Goldman could hire from all over the world. And uh, it was very culturally diverse. I always had at least one third women on my teams. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And I think it was because at the junior level, right, when they're hiring from MBA programs or undergraduate business programs, you got that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And I traveled myself 30 to 40 percent of the time. So a lot of times I was on the road and having to, uh, to manage from the road. So it, is, it, it was definitely something that, you know, you needed a little bit different techniques to do that. And, uh, and you needed to be able to manage remotely, but then also be sure to spend time in person and to get to know people at, at a personal level when you had the opportunity to be with them face to face.
0: Right, right. So how did you balance that sort of communication personally with the tasks that needed to happen? I mean, was that a sort of an integrated management approach to sort of managing the person and the task at the same time?
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the things that, uh, one of the principles that was really prominent at Goldman at the time and other, I mean, other firms, and, and it's been adopted more generally now, is the importance of communication. And communication you know for example now they've institutionalized town halls to give mm. employees a context of, of of what's going on in the bigger business and to give access to senior leaders but what i did was really make sure that i had regular meetings at least once a week and in some cases more frequently and part of that meeting was always talking about what was going on in the bigger picture business
0: Mm. And
1: I would have teams across borders at every level doing different tasks so that there was uh, communication, not just, you know, going on from me, but laterally within my group on a regular basis. Right. And sometimes that was faxing. A lot of it was phone A lot of it was voicemails, a lot of group voicemail before you had emails (laughs) and
0: the ability
1: to to chat and use things like Slack. And also, I think it's so important to engage your team to give them a sense of what challenges you're facing as a manager Mm. and to share... Not just the successes, but also some of the some of the times when uh, things did not go as planned, and how you had to regroup and be flexible, and uh, that sort of thing. So yes. share your pain and share your personal stories is what I right. say.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, I think that transparency sort of invites them into whatever vision they're going after, right? To, to know that there's these challenges that they can be a part of, they can find help you find solutions for, right? So right. I, I think that's excellent. excellent. Right.
1: And also, if you're managing a diverse group, it's uh, especially culturally diverse. Mm. There's often, you know, you can make some mistakes because you don't really understand how people communicate in different cultures. And so we would always try to coach each other in what not to do. <laughs> if you, right. You know, if you were working in a particular country or region.
0: Right. Well, I'm trying to imagine this. I mean, it's really, it's really astounding to think about, right? You got mainframe right. data, you're producing these four reports. You've got email as sort of a budding technology, but you really are relying on probably fax and phone and all of that. I think there are so many great technologies today to help communicate, but do you think we've lost any of the art of what you did back then and the way we communicate with each other now is—is is there? Do you have advice for yeah sort of our listeners? We, yeah, go ahead. We
1: have, uh, you know, my my pet peeve was that I had two people working for me sitting next to each other or on a trading floor across from each other and then emailing each other rather than talking. <laughs> to them. Right. There was a reason why we had four hundred people on trading floors. Right. The right. ability to learn by listening to conversations, seeing visibly an interaction between a trader and an analyst or a trader and a salesperson, seeing how different situations were handled. That is so hard to do with the technology we have today. So that's why I think even working remotely, that things like having cameras on all the time and not just Zoom meetings, but actual you know, chat forums. Mm-hmm. Uh, where people are sort of working and then tuning in and talking from time to time. That, I think, works very well.
0: Right. I think that was one of the more exciting things when, you know, years ago when I first spent time on trading floors was to see that sort of collaboration going on. So all of a sudden, you know, finding a solution, I, I remember visiting Jane Street, and it was just so, so interesting to see how, you know, they would tackle a problem together in really creative ways. So I love to hear that. And I just certainly don't want to lose that art as we have technologies that help us, you know, communicate more efficiently, but maybe not as effectively sometimes.
1: Right. And I did read how in the new new work set up, offices will be used more to have collaborative spaces mm. and sort of living rooms where people sit and chat, you know, areas where people can engage personally together. I think that probably was lacking a bit. And we'll have more of that as we think about the new world of work as when we go back.
0: Right, absolutely. So a lot of what you talked about, and what I'm envisioning, is that your team is not in isolation, right? None of our teams, can we just basically, you know, be given tasks and, you know, get them done within it. There's people above us always you know whether they be sea level suites or if we're there you know there's our clients wherever that case may be there's always someone we're managing up to there's people on either side of us and around us that are lateral moves there's folks that look to us for direction so how do you effectively manage to all those constituents in your work
1: yeah that's a That, that's critical. And, you know, I think all of us are usually better at one thing versus the other lateral mm. managing, down, managing up. I wish I had been a better managing up person, but I think that some of the keys that I found effective are first of all, to be visible and be self-promoting. Mm. <laughs> I didn't probably do enough of that. And I think it comes easier to men than to women. But that, uh, a senior manager once said to me, you know, always have your three elevator bullets, right, of Mm. what you're working on. (laughs) Right. So, and I used to tell my staff and my group to do that, have that as well. So that when you do come in contact with a senior manager, uh, you're always ready to say, you know, this is what I'm working on. This is what my challenges are. So they get a feeling of what's
0: in your agenda, what you're all about. That's a great piece of advice because I think sometimes, too, senior managers, and, and I know you you probably run into this as well, you're wanting to engage with some of the folks on your team or those on other teams as well. You don't always have the right question to ask, so be right. prepared with the right answer if you're looking to to communicate to someone in a senior level, Right. That's right. That's right. And that's always, you know, they always,
1: they also tell you that when you're talking to the media, the press, right? right. You know, have your notes written down ahead of time of mm-hmm. what you want to communicate. Think of managing up the same way, come in every day and say, okay, if I run into someone I want to impress, this is what I'm going to talk about. Also, I think to make it a routine of having regular contact with senior people, now, that can be a lunch every two weeks. It can be a voicemail. Well, we used to leave voicemails. <laughs> now you leave <make laughs> emails. But you can ask permission to say, do you mind if I just send you an email once a week on what are the top things that my team has accomplished, right? And, right. And make it about your group, not about you, right? That also, I think, gives a better impression because right. now they're getting the understanding That it's, you know, you talking about some of the successes and challenges of your team. And, you know, of course, you're a part of that. Also, always ask advice up of who they think in your group is best positioned to succeed you right? Mm. Uh, It will give you some insights because maybe they already have something in mind, but it also shows your thinking ahead about the next step in your career, right? That you're not going to be doing this forever. And that you'd like to begin coaching and training. And your senior manager may tell you, well, yeah, I think, you know, Mary or Todd might be good at this, but they need to develop X or Y or Z. And then you can help them work on that.
0: Oh, that's excellent. And just in terms of that communication, one of the things that I did, and this is at a bit of a risk uh, for those who are senior managers when I was, you know, coming up in the industry was I would try to find things that were of great interest to them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, if it was someone who um, headed up research at LPL and, you know, he was looking into a new area, I would read of that area and I'd send him links. I'd be like, hey, I ran into this, you know, this might have been an interest to you. I think you can do that managing up, but you can also do that laterally in order to build relationships with people, maybe outside of your group or outside of your immediate area of, you know, mm-hmm. contact. Yeah. And then it helped me to kind of build my own knowledge, but also sort of connect with people on things that they were interested in. Absolutely. I was
1: going to mention that in talking about managing laterally, but it mm. also helps in managing up. You know, I worked very hard and I enjoyed so much my relationships with clients uh, mm. at asset managers, asset owners when I was on yes. the sell side. And one of the things that I learned really was good in developing that partnership with clients was... To see what was important to them, both personally and professionally. You know, what were they trying to accomplish in their careers? And then that way, you know, I could help them in reaching some of those goals. So it might be that they had they wanted to communicate an idea to their managers, and I could help them in writing it up or coming out with the bullet points about it. So you know what i found is that if you help others become successful in what they really want to accomplish you know they will at a subsequent point do the same for you right so it's really almost a barter relationship uh, right and it might seem a little bit off the beaten path of of what you're working on with them on you know day 1 but it actually if you if you take that approach of look, I I want you to be successful in your position. And I'm going to see what my company can do to make that happen. But I also going to see how just my skill set can help you grow in your in your role.
0: Right, right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And then when you're managing down, you've talked, you know, quite a bit about the importance of communication, the importance of sort of meeting people where they're at and matching task to person. And any other advice on sort of the managing of the teams themselves for our listeners? Well, you know, I'm
1: one, if someone asked you about my management style, they would say I give a lot of feedback. (laughs) And so I, you know, over, they would say I probably over communicate, but I feedback, I give both critical and, you know, positive and negative feedback. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you do it on a frequent basis, it's easier to guide them away from directions that might not be, you know, in in their best interest or the firm's best interest, right? If you just give critical feedback once a month, it's going to carry too much weight, right? Right. So in my view, you should be telling them, you know, not just telling them, but telling others, especially if they do something well, make sure it's clear that they know it and others who they respect know it. Excellent. And if, you, if you're if you giving them critical feedback, that's when where it's better to give it not in front of other people. <laughs> right. <laughs> but to give it, tell them, look, yes. you know, this is okay, but it would have been better if you did this or if you took more time.
0: Right. And then I think you
1: need to share your experiences like, gee, you know, when I... When I did this type of analysis, I made this same mistake. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I really learned from it. So, you know, let them know that you were in their shoes doing that grunt work,
0: doing that analysis
1: and finding it a little challenging.
0: Excellent. And that sounds like empathy, right? Right, Right. right, right. Which is pretty important in all of this, I I know. And, and I've seen it from you. Um, so and, and I think you really only have empathy when you when you know your people. And That's right. um, so I, I've seen you in action with that, which is which is fantastic. I, I want to sort of dive back into feedback because throughout my career and I'm sure yours as well, you know, they've institutionalized this idea of reviews. Right. And right. You, you're sort of forced to focus A lot of times on individuals' weaknesses, right? And areas of unmet expectations. I know one place that I was at actually didn't allow me to reward beyond a very small number of people on my team because they had this bell shaped curve Mm -hmm. in place. And it was just frustrating. And I remember being frustrated and a colleague friend actually gave me a book called Discover Your Strengths and it was called Strength Finder and Don Clifton wrote it and sort of transformed me a lot in sort of my own self awareness but also giving it to my teams and saying hey instead of always sort of trying to change ourselves into something else maybe we could figure out what our innate strengths are it's something that you do really well like right up in talking to you you're very Transparent and vulnerable about what your strengths are and what it does is it allows everyone else to sort of lean into those strengths right as opposed to saying well but you're not good at this. So I'm going to spend all my time trying to get better at this. Well, why don't I just sort of like really dig into the things that I'm good at? Um, And it, it really changed the way. Yeah. I couldn't agree
1: more. And I I, talking about as an analyst or research strategist, whatever you call that I did, I traveled with so many different salespeople over Mm. the years, probably over a hundred. And I have to tell you that I have seen so many different styles of sales Be successful. Right. Some folks, it works better to be more substantive and, you know, use expertise and be technical. Others are all about bringing the right resources, but relationship management. I mean, and so I think, especially in roles like sales and management, there's all sorts of models to be successful. And, you know, you should build on what you're good at rather than try to change what you can't. I uh, I think that the other thought I had as you were talking was that where I worked at Goldman anyway, they did these reviews where you had to get 10 to 15 people,
0: <laughs> some oh, above yes. you at your yes. level and below you
1: to, <laughs> to evaluate. right And uh, you could pick who they were to some extent, but that was so helpful because then when I was giving reviews or receiving them, I knew some of it was the manager, but a lot of it was what my peers thought, okay, or mm. what the people who work for me thought, and I found it very informative, and uh, of course, yes. <laughs> my, my problems being a good listener came up time and time again, so that was one <laughs> that I was always working on, but... But
0: and it's and it's good to work on those things. Um, <laughs> but I remember the first time I I did one of those so many years ago, and I got a whole book back, you know, with all yes. the comments and everything else. And I remember I I truly remember this experience lying in bed with my husband, and I was going through this, and you know, I'm like highlighting like where someone says anything that's like you know not complimentary, and right. I'm reading those to my husband. And he's like. But Christine, look at all the other pages. I'm like, I'm not interested in those pages. I'm just interested in this one comment. So, um, so I, you know, I think that there's always a good balance of being working on yourself, but knowing that in the end, you know, we're not machines, right? You know, we're humans, and uh, we all have strengths, and and with those strengths come weaknesses, right?
1: Right. And and then I do want to be sure to mention that managing down is delegate delegate I, I mm. took it once took a management training program and it you know they reminded me it's never never too frequent to say this that only make the decisions that you absolutely have to make if, if there are decisions that are within your scope of your team that you can delegate downward let the people who work for you make those decisions or participate oh, in them mm. and it, it really empowers them and makes them feel part of the group. And they, and then they get a stake in it as well. So minimize the decisions that only you make and try to delegate as much as possible or engage as much as possible and get other inputs.
0: I love how you're taking delegation to not just the tasks, but the decision-making. I, I think that's really where the power is. Oh, that's, that's excellent. So tell me, Joanne, after we've talked about all these ways in which we can do it better, Who are some great managers over the course of your career that just come to the forefront of your mind when you think about great management? Well,
1: I was very fortunate to have three great managers that come to mind right away. And um, one was the Dexter Earl, the person who hired me at Goldman, who sadly just passed away last August. But he sort of set the stage for something I looked for in managers, and that was he was someone who really mixed the personal and the professional. Every conversation you had was a little bit about what's going Mm. on in your personal life and and, uh, as well as what you need to be doing or accomplishing professionally. But, and also his, uh, I was recommended to him to recruit from his wife, who was a client of mine, Carol Zipkin, she managed the index business at Alliance Capital. And I interacted with her in my prior role. And I came to realize that part of the reason Dexter was such a good manager was he came home every night to an accomplished senior woman (laughs) (laughs) who talked about her job. Fantastic. Yes. Right. And he understood what it was like. And so Dexter was always an advocate. He was another person he developed and was a manager under him, became the first woman partner in the equities division. And
0: um, what a legacy. Fantastic.
1: But one of the things that I had to do in making the decision to move there was I was a managing director in my prior role, and I had to step down to be a vice president because, of course, Goldman was a partnership there and they were not hiring partners. But I think that he helped me understand the opportunity because our business, you know, a good manager will tell you and help you understand that our business in financial services is highly uncertain, highly turbulent. I cover Mm. volatility, so I know this. And and companies go through a lot of, you know, situations, gains losses that are a result of the the market environment, right? That are out of your control. And so What you want to do is get yourself to a position where you're as sort of less vulnerable to that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that what I saw in the opportunity to go to Goldman at that time, you know, despite the fact that I had to take a step down in my career from the standpoint of position and number of people working for me and all that sort of thing was that I was getting to a place where I could stay and survive you know, the ebb and flow of the financial markets, which I did. I stayed there 17 years through lots of, lots of volatility in the markets. And uh, so that's, that's something that we can all keep in mind, independent of the manager, is that this is part of what you sign up for and you need to prepare your employees and your staff for that as well. That it's not all oh. about you, it's a part about what's going on in your environment. And so therefore, you know, if you have the ability to connect with your clients and your clients are probably going through this too, and this is what, you know, he set the example and showed me how important it was not just to develop relationships within the company, but also with the clients that you're serving and uh, make sure that you're there for them, not just when their jobs are going well, but when they're changing jobs, you know, when they're having right. difficulties in their business and that they will remember you, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that you were there and assisting them when things were not as smooth as they could be, which happens a lot, Right.
0: Oh, and it's it's great that you're mentioning this this move that you made that really helped you balance the risk and the reward of your career, right? A lot of times, I think we've got ourselves as as well as I'm really thinking about this next generation of leadership that we're all mentoring and promoting and excited for, is that sometimes it's hard for for them to give up the reward of a title, the right. compensation, the opportunity for, the risk profile of another place and the potential of another place. Mm -hmm. And so I love that you had that opportunity and that you took that opportunity and, you know, understanding the risk, but then understanding your opportunity of 17 years of an amazing career with a trajectory with a person that was going to support you was much more important than sort of your current role, your current title. That's right. That's right. And I I want to mention the other two managers that
1: I had, one at, at Kidder Peabody, Frank Jones, and, and and Mark Zurek at Goldman, was that both of them hired me in a way to succeed them. Mm. <laughs> and they really, you know, I guess they recognized that for them to get to the next level, they needed to bring in a very, a person that was, could be perhaps not as good as they were, but <laughs> could be accomplished <laughs> in, in this role and delegated and gave me the opportunity to be successful. They were there when I needed them for, for coaching and for help, like, how did you handle this? But both of them, you know, kind of moved into more business management positions from a lead research position, and then let me succeed them as the head of research and strategy. And and they gave gave me more responsibility than I thought I could handle. <laughs> and they made sure I was visible and successful, uh, you know, introducing me to clients, introducing me to senior people in the organization. And, you know, they're both lifelong friends. And, and of course, and, uh, and it's been great having the opportunity to work with them.
0: Right. And, and I'm sure other people saw that too as their opportunity to find people with potential um, and cultivate it. And I think that's what I love about our Women in ETFs organization as well is that we do that all the time, right? Trying right. to find try and find folks, giving them platforms, giving them the ability to take on leadership within an organization that their companies and their careers can witness, right? So that's that's fantastic. And I, I'd love for our listeners to sort of keep that in mind, not only for themselves, but for the people around them and the people that are on their teams and in giving them those types of, of opportunities. So I can't believe we're getting to the end here. But I always have a a question that I ask everyone on this podcast. And I I know you know this because you've been a supporter of mine. But in sort of my transition in my career with obviously staying in the industry as an independent trustee and and Mm -hmm. other things... I'm also a novelist now, so I'm I'm loving my writing career and I really do think that books can transport you and really transform you. So tell me what you've read recently that's inspired you. I'm an avid reader. I You, you describe oh, I me as it. an avid
1: golfer. I would say, <laughs> yes, I, trying <laughs> trying to be a good golfer, but definitely avid. You know, I developed an escape to books early, early on when I was in, in, in high school and I continue to go there. And so it was hard for me to, to choose. You told me you were going to ask me this question. I
0: yes, I did.
1: <laughs> but a recent one that I read and I, I picked actually, although I'm a big fan of fiction, I picked Two non-fictions: uh, the the book "Code Girls" by Lisa Mundy, and what drew me to it so it's it's a story of the women during world war ii who worked in decoding right well what, what do you call it uh christine i'm j- the, the
0: access power communications yeah, so the, yeah yes the communications
1: mm-hmm. that were encrypted right mm. from both japan and germany and and these girls were recruited i thought it was very curious where do you find obviously all the men are out fighting and they were recruited by the Army and Navy contacting math professors at the Ivy League women's colleges and then also the elite <laughs> women private women's schools in the South. Mm. And, and I thought it was so cool that they went to, having been a professor for part of my part of my career, they went to professors and they said, give us the names of some smart graduates of, of your classes or you know, people who've done well in your classes. And these girls were, of course, on track to be teachers or running their homes or, or nurses or whatever. And they recruited them to come to Washington DC to help break these codes. And just the social interaction among them, how they really played a critical role in the cause at the time, how they interacted. They were a majority. There were men working on it too, but they were in the minority. And I just found the the book absolutely fascinating. And in, in the fact that a lot of the buildings that I used to pass in DC all the time that I saw these apartment complexes were actually built <laughs> in Arlington for these women to reside who were working on the breaking the encryption.
0: Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. Well, we will make sure we have a link to Code Girls by Lisa Mundy, which I think came out in 2018, right in the show notes, um, so that folks can find it. And you said you had a second one too. second one very
1: quickly is uh, My Beloved World by Sonia Sotomayor that came out in 2013 and it's her personal biography of mm. uh, her young life and how to the point where she got her first appointment as a judge. But, you know, it, and she had a mother who was a nurse in the Bronx that was so focused on her education. And, uh, you know, I thought move from public housing building to other public housing building that so she would always mm. be in a new building and have a good environment for her family. And Sonia had, had never even been into Manhattan before she took the train to go to Princeton, just to give you an example. Just the, the opportunities she had, she went to a, a good uh, high school where she was on scholarship that really opened a lot of doors for her. But I, I thought it was just so interesting to see how she came from that world of growing up in the Bronx with, with clearly a mother who, who was, very ambitious herself and for her family and and got to the position where she was appointed as a judge.
0: Wow. Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We will have that in the show notes as well. So wow, I knew I was not going to be disappointed (laughs) in this conversation, Joanne. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed it.
0: Excellent, excellent. And thank you, our listeners, for spending your time with us. I hope this information that Joanne shared is not just information, that it is transformational in your career, and I'm rooting for you. Once again, I'd like to remind you to go to womeninetfs.com to find out more about diversity, opportunity, and events in the exchange-traded fund industry. Please also check out this episode's freebie where I've listed some great resources on management and don't miss some tips on decision delegation and creating your own elevator pitches. You'll find it at with a K, christinedelano.com. If you haven't subscribed, please make sure to do so. We have a season of incredible guests. Don't miss out. And if there's a topic you'd like us to tackle, please let me know. All links are in the show notes. Thank you for listening.